So if you have your Bibles, please join me in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. So we've been going through a series in Isaiah, and really, you say, well, Pastor, there's not really a, a, a Christmas promise here, but there is. Because the passages that we looked at the last two Sundays, uh, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government there will be no end. That is actually pointing to Jesus Christ. We also know from the background that we looked at that Israel had gone through a very difficult time. The northern kingdom, if you recall, was corrupt. The leaders were corrupt, and unfortunately, uh, the Assyrians came in and they took care of that. God used that to punish the nation of Israel. The southern kingdom survived until the Babylonians came in, and then they're all in trouble. So Isaiah here, they uh, proje- are projecting a moment in which God says, okay, I still love you. And he's pointing now to, I think specifically, to the coming of Christ. Now, there's three voices in these five verses. The first voice is that of the prophet Isaiah. That's in verse 1 and 2. The second voice is that of John the Baptist. I think it's universally accepted among scholars that uh, 3 and 4 are definitely the projection of John the Baptist. And then in verse 5, you have the word where it's being proclaimed. So these three voices are present in these five verses. And so as we look at this uh, text this morning, I do think it looks like to me a Christmas promise. <clears throat> you know, when I, was, uh, when I was a little boy, I don't know, many of you probably my age or older, maybe younger, I don't know, but... All I wanted for Christmas was an electric football game. Y'all remember that? The little players and they'd vibrate all over the field. Well, I must have been, I don't know, seven. And uh, I remember waking up Christmas morning and seeing the electric football game sitting there. I went to plug it in. I was getting ready to have the, the Redskins trash the Miami Dolphins. I plugged it in, and it didn't work. I guess my dad had bought the last one, and it was off the shelf, and it didn't work. I was like, really? (laughs) And I never did get the electric football game. We went back. I think we got it at Sears, and I'm not uh, trying to promote any business over another. But went back to Sears, and my mom made me get clothes. That's a good deal, right? Yeah, it's a real good deal. This was a promise that, at the time, sounded impossible. Even though in the midst of their suffering and heartache, God here makes a promise. And uh, Cyrus the Great came in and he rescued Israel, allowed them to go back to Uh, Palestine and to reestablish. So here you have all of this taking place. 
and God will fulfill his promise. Now, the first thing we're going to look at is God comforts his people. God comforts his people. Notice in verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Interesting, these little words here, nihom, nihom. And that's a pael verb, and it stresses a state or condition. Comfort, comfort. This, the situation and the circumstance is that Isaiah is to comfort the people. And what that really means is, in the Hebrew language, relief from sorrow. And again, we could also you know, say that Israel had gone through a very difficult period, and they were sorry. They, they were in a state of uh, sorry. They were sad, and they were hurting, and they were crying, and all of these things. And God says to Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, your God. You know, there, there are times when uh, pastors need to preach tough sermons, uh, I've never shied from a fight in Scripture. I think it's good to be uh, organized so that you just don't get up there and let one go on the congregation. There's times for tough messages. I find those times are extremely rare. The normal is that you want to help people. Any sermon that I preach, I try to help you. And Isaiah here now has an opportunity given by God, which I see as a mandate, to comfort his people. So God is using Isaiah to comfort the people of Israel. And oftentimes God does use pastors to help comfort. I know um, Tuesday we have Emmett's funeral, and uh, Emmett really wanted me to preach John 3.16, so that's what I'm preaching. And uh, but ultimately, the purpose of a funeral, and I don't like to use the word funeral, celebration of life, that's a better term for it, is to comfort the people. And so Isaiah is told here, comfort, comfort my people. It wasn't an option for Isaiah. And you know what? God uses people to comfort people. Did you know that? You go through and you're having a, you're having a bad time? You ever had somebody come alongside you and help you and comfort you and give you uh, aid, if, if you will, and you have a great opportunity as believers here this morning that when uh, somebody is hurting in our congregation that we can come alongside? And I see this picture here with Isaiah, God saying, I want you to comfort my people. They've been through a lot. Many of you have been through a lot, haven't you? And some of you have been through a lot more than others. And it's always good to have somebody there that can come alongside you, hug you. I know men don't hug, right? Now, throw that out. You should hug. Every man, stand up right now and hug somebody. No, I'm just kidding. I want you. Um, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. <laughs> comfort, comfort my people. Israel had a long period of sadness and sorrow and hurt 
and pain. And God's telling Isaiah, I said this like three times now, comfort, comfort my people. Notice here the ownership. You go through, you go through a period here where it's really bad and it looked like God had just abandoned the nation. And notice what Isaiah writes, my people. That's God's voice through Isaiah, my people. And then definitively says, your God, Elohim, the God of creation. You are still my people. Listen, if you are in Christ today, you are God's people. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you belong to him. Nothing will change that. Nothing can come along and thwart that. You belong to him. And so I could say this morning, no matter what's going on in your life, comfort, comfort my people. Spence Jones, in his commentary, note the encouragement contained in the expressions, my people and your God. Israel was not cast off, even when most even when most deeply afflicted. Let me say this, lest we forget. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what you may be facing, no matter what trials you are going through, you are still loved by God. And God will take care of you. And he does have a plan. You know, when, when you look at the life of Jesus, do you know why Jesus got into trouble? Do you know why he got into trouble? Well, first of all, at the time of Christ, when he was born, the political scene and the religious scene was messed up, particularly with, particularly with those that supposedly knew the law. And you know where Jesus got into trouble? Jesus got into trouble because he was compassionate. Did you know that? Jesus goes into the home of a sinner and eats. How can he do this? How can God, how can this man have this woman caught in adultery and reach down to her? People wanted to stone her. Jesus was a God of compassion and is a God of compassion. You read the Gospels and you see the life of Jesus was one of compassion. As people of God, that should be our banner as well. People of compassion. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. We, we, we kind of go through life and, and, and we forget. It's thinking back in my mind. All the people that have come alongside me that have helped me. You have that great opportunity. Somebody that's in your life, you reach out and you help them. You help them in their grief. Now the message, the message that Isaiah gives is in verse 2. Okay, check this out. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Way back many moons ago in a faraway place, I pastored a, a church 
Poplar Head Baptist Church. We didn't have a baptistry. How do you remember that? I know Audrey does. What happened was that I went into that church and I was preaching grace. Do you know those people had never under fully understood God's grace? They were legalists. Now, I think there's some things we need to be legalist on, like Jesus is the only way to God, and there are other things. I get that. But these people were extreme legalists. And I come in there preaching grace. I remember one Sunday morning, two girls, they were twins. They came forward. They were crying. They said they've never heard the gospel before. And they were raised in that church. Amazing. I'm actually surprised they kept me around. And there, I'll never forget this one, uh, <laughs> this one, uh, we had a revival. Remember those days, right, when you'd have revivals? Uh, we had this one guy, he was known to the church, I wasn't, I didn't know him, but he came in, he was a nice enough guy, and um, <laughs> we had five nights of revivals, I think that's where my hearing went, um, he, he came in and I said, well, pastor, would you, like, uh, would you like my microphone? He said, I've never had much use for microphones. So he gets to the pulpit and he takes his shoes off. And I'm like, oh, no. For an hour and 10 minutes, and I was baptized in the front row because of the sweat. I was sitting up front. He screamed and yelled for an hour and 10 minutes. I, I'm going to say this. My ears were hurting. The next night, I sat way in the back. I didn't want anything to do with that. Now, there was nothing wrong with his message. He alliterated everything. He was a good man, a great man, a godly man. And I used to do that too when I was a young pastor. There was nothing wrong with his message, but the way that he presented it, I think, Angie, you told me when you were growing up here, you, why is the minister always mad, right? Isaiah is told here, speak tenderly. Speak tenderly. And this word literally means, these, these two words, speak tenderly, means to speak to the heart. First Thessalonians 5.1, encourage one another, build each other up, just as fact you are doing. You know, sometimes it's the way in which we deal with people that can make all the difference in the world. I don't know if you got somebody in your life this morning, uh, maybe encourage them. Somebody that is in a, a bad spot. I, you know, this is usually, people say, this is the greatest time of the year. But did you know that more people go into depression this time of year than any other time of year? It's because, oh gosh, when I was 19 years old over in Germany, I was 
away from home. I was depressed. This could be, it says mostly a joyful time, but folks, a lot of people are in states of depression during this time here. And he says, look, Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to their heart. Let people know, Isaiah, that you love them. That's about what he's saying. Comfort, comfort my people. Let them know, Isaiah, that you love them because I love them through you. And so Isaiah is supposed to find the way in which he will comfort God's people. Come along. I know it's been a tough time. I I know we've had a tough road, but I want you to know that God loves you. He's your God. He's my God. He's a great God, and he will change your life. And there's a day coming when you will not be in mourning, when you will not be crying. Hang in there. Keep fighting. Keep moving forward. And that's what Isaiah is called to do by God. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly. Let them know, Isaiah, that you love them, and let them know that I love them. And I know, I get it, there's difficult periods in our lives. But there's three ways that they were encouraged. The first way was that the war was over. The war was over. And cry, Isaiah writes, and, or God writes through Isaiah, and cry to her that the warfare has ended. Uh, Alec Motir writes this, Israel's hard service, savah, here means a period of duress, but the word contains the idea of duress which serves a purpose. Let me just say this, and I think it can easily be backed up with scripture. Anything that comes into your life, anything, God has a purpose for Did you know that? So the way that we look at those situations determines what we learn from the situation. And there's been times in my life I go, okay, what's the deal? Right? I I figure as in good company, David questioned him a lot too, right? God, why are you allowing this? Why, why are you allowing this circumstance? And if, if we tweak our view and our approach for a minute, we can come to understand that God is doing something in our lives. Because this duress has a purpose. Let me give you a verse, write it down. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. And that's the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. Listen, anything that's happening in your life, just like the nation of Israel, this savah, it had a purpose. God has a purpose. So we can then change rather than go, Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? You can then back up and say, God, 
what are you trying to do? What are you trying to show me about what is happening in my life? That's a, that's a change in perspective. That's changing the lens a little bit of looking at a situation and go, okay. And sometimes, newsflash, <laughs> sometimes we bring the situations and circumstances on ourselves by our own actions. But even in that, I default to this. Because God knows everything about your life. And sometimes, I was listening to John MacArthur this morning. That's what preachers do when they're eating breakfast. They listen to preachers. <laughs> he was talking about all the bad stuff that happened to Israel. And he went through a litany. Really good, really good sermon from the 10 minutes that I heard it. But he was talking about purpose. That God ultimately has a purpose and a plan. He does. Let me encourage you this morning that no matter what you're going through, just tweak your view a little bit and say, what is God doing? And ultimately, because you can do that, the war is over. The spiritual war between you and God is over when you trust in Jesus Christ. The iniquity of the nation was finished. Notice also here in verse 2, her iniquity is pardoned. Ratzah, ratzah. Some of these Hebrew words I, I love, ratzah. And that means to enjoy a favorable position. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Let me tell you this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. They are done. They are finished. You do not carry them anymore. You have been freed. And that sin can never keep you from God. Once it's laid on Christ on the cross and you trust in him as your Lord and Savior and you meant it in your heart, your sins are forgiven. Do you remember the day that you asked Jesus Christ into your heart? Do you remember that moment uh, and you just felt like free? And I was quite amazed. I got saved on an army training exercise, Fort Sam Houston, San Antonio, Texas. It was amazing. I went down, talked with the army chaplain, uh, Terry Burlingham. He was a captain. And... Uh, we prayed and he explained the gospel to me. It wasn't my grandmother's gospel. It wasn't my papa's gospel. It was the gospel that I heard really for the first time. And I trusted in Jesus Christ that day. And I went back to my buddies that I used to hang out with at the bars and partying. I was amazed that they weren't excited. <laughs> uh, let me remind you this morning that your sins have been forgiven if you are in Christ. That doesn't mean that we live our lives without repentance and asking God to forgive us, 
but it means ultimately that your sins have been forgiven. It does not stand between you and God. And then uh, we get to the double divine provision, what I call the double divine provision. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. In other words, all of this pain that the nation went through, all of the struggle that the nation went through, they did it. And, and by the way, I don't think it was actually the people. I think the leadership got most of, or should have gotten most of this. Unfortunately, as goes the leader, so goes the nation. And so we have this point where Israel, Isaiah says, you know what? Look, God loves you. He's still your God. Your sins have been forgiven. The war is over. We're home. We can go about our lives, and that's coming. Beyond this, beyond this, he will be sending, God comforts his people by sending the Messiah. Now, of course, this is a long way off in the distance. But at that point, they were moving back, circulating. Their war had ended. Their, actually, their captivity had ended. And we look at the way, verses 3 and 4. This is my favorite part of this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, verse 3. And we get now to this gentleman. John the Baptist in the Old Testament. And if the scholars, the Levites and the scholars and those that read the Torah would have paid attention to it, they would have known about this man who came from the wilderness preaching repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. They would have known him to be Isaiah's 40, verse 3 and 4. I don't know how they could have not known that. So here comes John the Baptist eating locusts. I guess you have to cook it over an open fire, right? Somebody told me it tastes like chicken, but... <laughs> locusts and wild honey. And every movie that I've ever seen pictures him as a wild guy. But he shows up on the scene, and the purpose of him showing up on the scene was to point people to the Messiah. This would have been the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, 3 and 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Some of them probably knew it. Not all the Pharisees and Sadducees were corrupt. I don't want to lump them all together. I think some of them really wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah. And you'd have to think when they see, okay, the voice of one cried in the wilderness. Wait a minute. Didn't Isaiah say something about this? 
I always have great affection for John the Baptist. What a mission, right? To preach and to see the Savior of the world. Matthew 3, 1 through 4, Mark 1, 1 through 4, Luke 1, 76 to 78, and John 1, 23 all mention John the Baptist. This highway of God that Isaiah writes about makes straight in the desert a highway for our God, verse 3. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain made and mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So what does all that mean? Well, most scholars, and I would agree with it, these are metaphors. Uh, meta- metaphors that are, are supposed to make a point. The first one is straight. God will come to the aid of his people. Verse 3. So when Jesus arrives, John the Baptist has already said, Jesus is coming. And so he has already laid the groundwork straight. Secondly, every valley will be made low. It's hyperbole in the Hebrew language. Refers to roads being smooth for a royal visitor. Do you know when Jesus was born? I don't want to get ahead of next week's sermon. When Jesus was born, do you know Rome had built new roads? John the Baptist here is saying, we're preparing for a royal visitor. Number three, everything will be leveled. There will be no barriers between God and man. It has been removed. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in two? That was symbolic of saying, you no longer need a priest to get to God. You can go right to God. Symbolic, that opening of that curtain. Only the high priest could go in there and only once a year. Now, in the holy, the holy place, they would go in and they would do their weekly uh, services there. But you could not go into the Holy of Holies and it only happened once a year and the priest probably... Uh, sprinkled himself to make sure that he was clean before he went in there. And when Jesus dies, that temple veil rips. And there are no more barriers to God. I want you to know this morning that Jesus gives you direct access to the Father. What an amazing moment. Another reason that I think John the Baptist got into trouble was that he was baptizing people. You go back and you read Exodus chapter 19, and you find Moses telling the people, go wash your garments. I I think, I think, that when they saw John the Baptist baptizing people, Exodus 19 was rolling in their mind. Because the covenant process starts with water. Ritual cleaning. Whole parallels, perfect. 
we seem to think that the Old Testament's archaic, but that's how we got the covenant process. The same covenant process that was in play in the Old Testament is in play in the New Testament. So John the Baptist is baptizing people for the remission of their sin, and Moses took the people down, washed their garments, because tomorrow God speaks, and you have to be pure. And so Exodus 19 all the way to Exodus uh, chapter 34 is all about the covenant process. And I have to believe, I have to believe that part of the anger directed at John from the Pharisees, hey, we know what he's doing. And they meet together. Is he starting a new covenant? And maybe that's why they were upset with John. And of course, Exodus 20, verse 1, I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. After Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened up. This is my beloved son. Same voice. And the parallels go all the way through the New Testament until Jesus dies on the cross, which was also in Exodus where Moses takes part of the blood and he sprinkles it on the people and on the altar. That's Jesus. That's a portrayal of the future Messiah who would pay for the sins of the world. Quite amazing. And you, the only reason I, I, I got this was by Dr. Averbeck at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I was taking a, a course on Isaiah and he begins talking to us about, well, actually it was Old Testament law and Isaiah. He starts talking to us about the covenant process. And in the midst of that class, I went, wait a minute. And I wrote my paper and Dr. Averbeck said, this is really good. Because I showed that John the Baptist was actually Moses washing the garments and it goes all the way through. So John the Baptist arrives on the scene. He's preaching. And the result. Don't worry, guys, gals, I'm almost finished. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And that word revealed means to uncover, to make known, to soon be made known. Of course, it was many years later. And then you have John the Baptist. As he's baptizing, he looks up and he says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> That's Jesus. Can you imagine John the Baptist baptizing and all of a sudden he sees the Son of God, the deliverer of not only the nation of Israel, but the world. And he looks and he goes, look, there he is. I don't think he went, look, guys, behold, the Lamb of God. I think he was really happy about it. And then Jesus comes to John and John goes, wait a minute. No, no, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, no, no to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the covenant process. I think that's why they were mad at John. 
and all flesh shall see it together. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite verses, actually chapters, is uh, John chapter one. To be specific, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You think, this is really interesting He dwelt among us. Uh, That word dwelt means tabernacled. Like a tent. Almost maybe like the, uh, the tent of meeting that the Israelites would have been very familiar with. He tabernacled. By the way, you are tabernacling here. You have a tent. And one day you will leave that tent. Jesus was real. He really lived. He was really the Son of God. I still remember that professor at Florida State that summer that I took a history course. He went all the way through. He was teaching about Jesus and his disciples, Florida State. I told the professor, and at the end of his little discourse on that day, he said, Jesus was a good man. And that was the end of it. And I went up to him, I said, that was really good. You, you explained the gospel at Florida State. <laughs> I was surprised by that. But, But I said, he's more than a good man. He's the savior of the world. And the professor looked at me like I was from Mars. Even having gone through all of that. Jesus came preaching grace and truth. Do you know what grace is? Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. And the reason we're able to do that is because Christ paid for your sin and mine. And Jesus is the truth. He's the ultimate truth. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let me ask you this morning. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? If not, please come forward here in a minute. He welcomes everyone. You you can't be too far gone that God won't save you. Secondly, are you going through difficult hardship trials right now? I understand. You're going to cry. You're going to question But maybe this morning you can come up and just talk to God about it. But ultimately, let's get a different lens here. Let's start thinking, 
this is in my life, God's using it somehow, and I need to find the purpose in it. And then to know this, that we have the right Messiah. We have the right Messiah. And the Christmas promise, we're on the back side of it. Many of you in this room, I, I, I know you and you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you've already experienced this Christmas promise. You come this morning as we have our invitation. Either give your life to Christ, talk to him. He's waiting to hear from you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time.